District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. I mentioned the Bureau of Land Management's new rule, the public lands rule, which seems like a reversion to BLM 2.0 planning from the yesteryears, from the Obama era. And I wanted to explore that topic more for you all today and how it deceptively undermines multiple use management of public lands. I brought on a very good expert, someone I think who could speak to this, having worked in the Trump administration, we are speaking with today. Karen Bud Phelan, who was just recently the Deputy Solicitor of Wildlife and Parks under the Department of Interior, and she was the lead attorney in revising regulations implementing the Endangered Species Act, including regulations recognizing the rights of local governments to protect the economic stability and customs and cultures of their constituents. She was heavily involved in drafting regulations, giving landowners the rights to appeal of wetlands maps on the National Wildlife Refuge Land System, and she also served as the Department of Interior's representative on the task force that revised regulations implementing the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, and she previously served in the Reagan administration in that same agency as the special assistant to the Assistant Secretary for Lands and Mineral Management, and she has also worked in law extensively and now Back in the private sector, she has assisted local governments in asserting their rights of constituent, of consistent review, cooperation, and coordination in federal agency decisions, protecting private property owners to protect their constitutionally guaranteed property rights, other multiple users in supporting grazing and multiple use on federal public lands, and also exposing radical environmental groups' abuses of the legal system and the attorney fee-shifting statutes. I don't think Karen will be the only former interior official to speak out against this. I expect more, uh, maybe including the past two secretaries and some of their other colleagues to oppose this rule. And if you are very supportive of multiple use management, you'll learn about the utility and the need to preserve that from a alternative or a reimagining of it. So Karen Bud Phelan will take it away from here. Thanks for listening today. Karen, thank you so much for joining my podcast. Really thrilled to have you on. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Would you describe your background and some of the previous roles you've held? Certainly. I um, grew up as a fifth-generation rancher on a family-owned ranch in a place called Big Piney, Wyoming, which is about 150 miles south of Yellowstone Park and 150 miles north of Rock Springs. Um, As I said, I'm the fifth generation. My grandkids will be the seventh generation on the same ranch. I grew up with BLM and Forest Service permits, as well as a lot of private property and state permits. And I came to learn early on that in the Western states, the federal government really governs how a ranch is operated and managed, unlike the Eastern states. And so I became interested in law, went to law school, and the first job I had out of law school was um, going back to Washington, D.C. and working in the Ronald Reagan administration for Department of Interior. At the time, the secretary was named Jim Watt, and I worked for the 
um, assistant secretary for land and minerals management that at that time was over the Bureau of Land Management. So then I, I, I could only stand about three years in DC. I came back to Wyoming. Um, my husband and I started a, this law firm because I always knew that I wanted to represent ranchers and rural governments and try to explain to people in Washington what it was all about because people in the city just don't understand what we do and what we're going through. I was then asked to go back in the Trump administration and work as a deputy solicitor for Fish, Wildlife and Parks, which I did for two years. And again, I couldn't take Washington any longer. So I, I fled DC at the end of the Trump administration, came back to Wyoming, and I'm now back working in the law firm again, again, doing property rights work, um, working for farmers and ranchers and rural communities, doing BLM work, Endangered Species Act, just about anything that has to do with keeping somebody on the land is something I work on. What is your assessment of the current status of the Department of Interior? Um, is, it, is it varying from its message and mission statement? Well, it's certainly different than when um, President Trump was there. Under President Trump and Secretary David Bernhardt, the mission was really focused on on the West and on these rural communities. I mean, what people in the East have to understand is that without use of the federal lands, these rural communities are gonna dry up and die. I mean, there's not other industries, there's not other employments, unless you are running cows or working for oil and gas or working in mining or working in energy production or relying on Bureau of Reclamation water, you can't make a living in the West. It's just not possible. You also can't feed a nation without the people that live out here. And so the Trump administration was really focused on how do we release jobs? How do we build an energy independent America? How do we make America food secure? And just reading the executive orders and the information from the Biden administration, they've totally flipped that review and they're now looking at things like climate change and they're looking at absolutely no use or very, very limited use of the public lands. Um, I don't believe they're supporting farmers and ranchers and energy companies or even people that, that want to do anything besides just barely hike on the federal lands um, Certainly not hunting, certainly not the other things the way we did. And I, it's, it's just a total reversal of, of focus. And I obviously don't agree with that focus considering the clients I represent and considering that my family still needs to use those BLM lands if we're going to have a ranch. Regarding BLM, they just obviously announced a interesting rule interesting is a nice way of putting it, the public lands rule. And it calls for, I wouldn't say it's a new idea, but they call for conservation leases. And when I was perusing through the rule, to me, it didn't stick out as conservationist. And it seemed to be promoting something contrary to the department's mission statement. So could you explain, if you've assessed the rule, what it does and how it kind of 
harm this multiple use model that allows for both commercial and even recreational public uses on BLM lands and related lands. And, and what could happen if, if this proceeds? Absolutely. The first thing I have to say, say about the rule is I think that it turns the idea of multiple use and sustained yield on its head by all of a sudden defining conservation use as a multiple use. If you look at the Multiple Use Sustained Yield Act, which is where all that language came from, it talked about all of the uses on the federal lands, mining, grazing, oil and gas, recreation, whether it's off-road or on-road, all of those kind of things. And while the Act, Multiple Use Sustained Yield Act, talks about how these uses are to be balanced, it didn't put like a complete preservation use on the same level as it did all of the multiple uses. And I certainly understand that the courts have said that not every use has to occur on every acre of the federal land. And I would agree that that is a correct interpretation of the Multiple Use Sustained Yield Act. But that act was passed in the 60s and for all of a sudden to say, oh, we have a whole new use included in an act that was passed in the 60s makes absolutely no sense to me. The other thing that really gave me heartburn about the legal interpretation is that the new BLM proposed rule doesn't mention any of the other rules that specifically grant use of the federal lands. For example, the Taylor Grazing Act was an act that was passed in 1934, and that is the act that granted the ability for livestock grazing to occur on allotments on the federal lands. The Federal Land Policy and Management Act specifically did not repeal the Taylor Grazing Act. It says it right in FLIPMA. And all of a sudden now you've got a planning rule that doesn't even talk about all of those acts that are required by FLIPMA, I think is a huge problem. Um, it doesn't talk about the Mineral Leasing Act. It doesn't talk about the mining law. The, the planning rules don't make it clear that the BLM just can't plan those other uses out of existence. And I think there's a real possibility of that with this new planning rule. In fact, the rule in itself is inconsistent. You look at livestock grazing and initially in one place, the rule, the proposed rule says livestock grazing will be allowed. And then in another place, it asks the question to the public whether livestock grazing should be allowed under conservation use. And in my legal opinion, you can't deny the ability to graze livestock. As part of the model, absolutely. I don't know if you've taken a look at language from these kind of preservationist environmental groups like the Aspen Institute and others, but I noticed parallels between the press release and some of the language of this proposed rule that stem from an Aspen Institute kind of treatise. They call it like We the Public uh, for Public Lands, Reimagining Public Lands. And they talk about this very thing that they want to accomplish, peppered very nicely, but they call it a public use model and not a multiple use model. And to me, reading the priorities of climate and some of these other so-called nice buzzwords in their mind, 
I noticed that it's language encouraging a public use model, which is very misleading to call it a public use model. Um, it's more so like a no use preservationist model to keep everyone off of that. Have, have you seen that language echoed before? Because this is not multiple use by any means when you when you peruse the, the proposed rule. So to me, it seems like they're trying to package it as multiple use, but it's really this reimagining to a public use, which is very dubious. I would agree with that. The other thing that struck me is when Bill Clinton was president and Bruce Babbitt was secretary of the interior, they came out with new livestock grazing regulations. And one of the proposed regulations was that environmental groups could acquire grazing allotments and then simply never use them. No livestock grazing would occur. Um, Public Lands Council that represents the public lands livestock industry filed litigation in Wyoming that the whole case went to the Tenth Circuit. The Tenth Circuit specifically said that that rule violated the Taylor Grazing Act because grazing allotments were to occur with livestock grazing. And simply allowing them to be pulled off of grazing and held in perpetuity for some sort of a conservation use was illegal. The BLM did not challenge that finding when it went to the U.S. Supreme Court. So that Tenth Circuit Court case still stands. And this rule, proposed rule we're looking at now, doesn't include any of that. It looks to me like this is just another way to package that whole sort of conservation use and then apply it to the other multiple uses as well. I thought under the Federal Land and Policy Act, Management Act, it already stipulates that there have to be requirements for conservation uses uh, to point to antiquities, historic stuff. So it already is implied in the law, but they want to put, I think, I can see the likes of Sierra Club, Center for Biological Diversity, and other really kind of nefarious actors here who are not conservationists, they're preservationists. I can see them exploiting the conservation lease component and, like you said, acquiring it for non-uses and to really mess the order and kind of mess the kind of balance that has been out there when when we've had good governance, if you can say that, uh, when we've had friendlier administrations like the Trump administration and others uh, before, um, I could see it totally bungle kind of that and give undue influence to these groups who are very anti-democratic in their behavior. They like to hold conservation decisions hostage, really kick off the grazers, uh, timber interests, even hunters and anglers. They don't want them part of the equation too, unless they agree with them. Uh, so do you kind of see the hijacking of these stakeholder decisions that could come about from this kind of advocacy of conservation leases as well? Yes. And one of the things that really worries me about that is that if you look at the part about the ACECs, which is like you said, FLIPMA required to be set forward for very specific uses, somewhat like the Antiquities Act, you were supposed to secure the smallest area possible. And now they're going to greatly expand ACECs through this planning rule. Now, one of the things about the planning process is it is very arduous and difficult to complete. Um, you have to do NEPA for an entire land use plan. The the agencies um, don't like to do them because it's, they're very difficult to do. And I'm not blaming the agencies for that. But because of the time that it takes to get a land use plan done, what I don't want the BLM to do is say, okay, we're proposing all these areas for ACECs. And rather than waiting to go through the planning process, we're just going to treat them like ACECs now 
while we get through the three, five, seven-year planning process that we have to go to through to actually designate them as an ACEC. So it's almost like a wilderness study area. We're going to pick out these areas. We're going to manage it like it was wilderness until we get through the planning process, which takes forever. And so I absolutely see that that process is going to be hijacked. Legally speaking, the thing that makes me really nervous is the BLM is talking about allowing um, these outside third parties that it doesn't define very well to like hold conservation money or mitigation money. So say you have a big corporation who can afford to pay some sort of a high dollar compensatory mitigation. What I want to be sure is that money doesn't go to these nefarious groups who are then just going to be able to use it to fund their activities to kick off more multiple use lands or to kick more multiple uses off the lands. And the rule is not very clear about who it's going to pick for these third party money holders, how much money you're going to be able to make as a third party group holding this funding. And the other thing that really bothers me is is I know that farmers and ranchers aren't going to be able to afford to pay that kind of mitigation money. If you are a big corporation and you've got huge holdings, you're going to be able to afford to pay this compensatory mitigation or to be able to afford to purchase a conservation lease. Little mom and pop ranches or oil companies or miners or whoever can't afford that. And so I think we're just going to get pushed off because we can't afford to play the game. And so you're, it's just going to further consolidate all these industries and make it more and more difficult for little rural communities to stay on the land. Would you say in your opinion that this proposed rule is a reversion back to the BLM 2.0 planning rule of 2016. And from what I remember reading about that, Congress used the Congressional Review Act to essentially revoke it. And I think barring some extenuating circumstance, the agency cannot create that same rule or, or reiteration of that rule. Is that correct? And do you see any similarities to this previous rule? Um, I do see some similarities to the previous rule. I do know, and I've been contacted by some staff members who are concerned that this is a reiteration of that um, based on the CRA. And so I think that that's something that's going to be very, very carefully looked at by Congress to see if the BLM can explain why this is different than planning 2.0 that's already been rejected. And what else about the rule or Anything else that you want to chime in on conservation-wise kind of sticks out as you as alarming. Um, like you said, they are doing this with the Antiquities Act. I've been talking about that at length and how actually Congress has to come in here similarly on this issue and say there are possibly limitations to presidential power as to how much of a small compatible area is actually such and you can designate for a national monument. I know they're trying to use this to, I think, uh, for the Antiquities Act, the two most recent monuments, they said they want to have it as part of 30 by 30, which is a very problematic, very dubiously sounding proposal as well. Um, and I've seen that you've done some research on the Endangered Species Act. I feel like they're going to use all these laws, <laughs> weaponize them, 
and simultaneously undermine the multiple use model is, is that something to be concerned about? They're going to continue to use these laws or rather misuse these laws and then remove stakeholders from these critical decisions as it affects their lives. Yes. I think this is all tied in with 30 by 30. Um, and the research that I've done, I think the, Biden administration rebranded things as 30 by 30 because they knew they couldn't get away with 50 by 50, which is what a lot of the literature says. You have to, you know, return 50% of the earth and waters to its quote, you know, natural state or pre-European man or whatever they want to term it to be able to protect us from this climate change. I think they turned it to 30 by 30. I think this is all falling into that very, very kind of same hands. And I think whether you look at what they're doing with the Endangered Species Act and eliminating, for example, the Biden administration eliminated the definition of habitat so that they can now redesignate habitat that's not occupied by a species as critical habitat. You look at what they're trying to do um, with the national parks and really limit the uses in national parks. Um, I think this is all very, very dubious. I think one of the other things that I think this rule is gonna absolutely fail on is that right now the livestock grazing community is having to live with what they call the fundamentals of rangeland health. And the fundamentals of rangeland health were created <coughs> excuse me, in the Clinton administration. And it's basically the BLM is supposed to go out and they're supposed to do studies on the quality of water, the quality of the riparian areas, upland studies, all these studies to make sure that, that the lands are protected. It sounds great. The problem is, is in practice, is that the BLM is so far behind completing these standards of rangeland health just for livestock grazing, I cannot fathom how the agency is now going to do these very long, arduous studies for every use on the federal lands. They're not going to get them done. That's just the reality. <laughs> now, because of the problem for livestock grazing, an appropriation rider was passed I believe it was around the year 2000, but don't quote me on the date because I may be wrong on that date, where Congress said that BLM could not simply eliminate a term grazing permit because it hadn't got the paperwork done. It hadn't completed its standards of rangeland health assessment. It hadn't renewed the permit. And so ranchers then got to at least have a permit year to year to year while they're waiting on BLM to get the paperwork completed. You don't have the same kind of thing applied to oil and gas or mining or recreation or hiking or whatever, but they're going to have the same problem. The BLM is not going to be able to have the money or the manpower or the time to go in and do these multi-year studies to determine if they're meeting standards of rangeland health. And so I think as a practical matter, everything is just going to come grinding to a halt because the agency can't get the work done. And so I think that's a real easy way to, to limit or eliminate multiple use because the agency is going to just say, we don't have the studies done. 
So we can't allow you to do whatever, you know, build a hiking trail or do whatever it is you want to do. Or we're going to close, for example, a recreation area until we get the standards of rangeline health done so that we can determine if recreation can continue. I just, I think it's going to be an impossible situation and a great reason for the wrong administration to come in and close things down because they don't have the personnel to finish the studies that it's going to take to keep the public lands open. It's not a positive picture, I think, for public lands. And you even see it among, um, I deal a lot with hunters and anglers too. And some of them are just starting to realize that these kind of overreaches from Washington also affect their ability to recreate on public lands. And they just don't know because government is very complicated. Um, it's meant to be very confusing how everything is structured or how they present things and they need greater clarity. So it's, it's good you've been able to explain this. Are you also helping uh, with plaintiffs to challenge the Biden administration WOTUS rules? And I just saw that he vetoed uh, the repeal of his rule, which actually did get bipartisan approval, the repeal. Um, but are you working on that as well with any plaintiffs? Um, I, I'm not working on that case. I filed a Supreme Court amicus brief on behalf of the Sacketts. In that case, it's now pending in front of the Supreme Court and we're waiting for a decision on that. It, I think it is all very political for Biden to come out with a Clean Water Act rule before the Sackett case is decided because that case is going to absolutely define what's going to be included in a waters of the U.S. And so I just, I, I find it, I mean, there's only one reason to come out with a rule before the Supreme Court case, and that's for politics. And it's disappointing that resource decisions are made based on politics, not based on the rule of law. Karen, if anyone is interested in following your legal work, uh, perhaps any of your musings, where would you like to point them to here on the podcast? We have a website where a lot of it, a lot of our work is posted. Um, my daughter also has a media group called let's see, what is Wild West Advocacy LLC, and she does a lot of the writing for the law firm. We've sort of teamed up in that I do a lot of the legal stuff. And then she does the advocacy, advocating for farmers and ranchers. And so a lot of this information she puts out through her advocacy group. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show to explain what the status of public lands is if we are to worry about the future of multiple use, which is a wonderful model. It should be able to be upheld. But we see, unfortunately, bad actors in this administration trying to undo that and push this reimagining of it. Can I add one thing? Yes. Yeah, so, sure. So as I'm... Planning about all this stuff, it makes it sound like, you know, we want dirty air and dirty water and destroy the universe and all that stuff. And that is not the case. What I think the Biden administration doing is simply, I mean, they're not looking at the quality of the habitat or the quality of the land. They're looking at a political game. And that's really what I think people ought to be concerned with. I mean, if, if if what is occurring on the land is genuinely causing degradation, then deal with that. But that's not what this rule does. What this rule does is say, we're going to shut everything down until we decide, and we don't have the manpower to decide, so just everything stops. 
And I think that's what people really need to understand. It's not that any of us are advocating for environmental problems. It's, it's we're saying, don't shut us down while you're trying to figure it out or use us in a way to help you solve your issues instead of just shutting down all these rural communities and the ability to hunt and fish and backpack and recreate and graze cows and, and do things that people in, in the United States and in the West really need to do. Very well said. And thank you, Karen, again, for coming on to share your expertise, uh, your previous work and, and your ongoing work legally to help kind of retain multiple use as a true guiding philosophy of kind of this conservation ethos we've had in the United States for a while. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you. And if there's any other questions you have, please reach out. I absolutely will. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.